Hello, I'm Evans Maratis, the Harry T. Wilkes Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera. We're going to be talking now with Thomas Hasse, lighting director and designer for Cincinnati Opera for over two decades. And Thomas is going to be sharing with us how he got into this profession, some of the unique aspects of how he illuminates both the stage and the drama itself, and how he started an amazing tradition at Cincinnati Opera. Thomas, I'd like to start by asking you what is perhaps one of your earliest, if not the earliest, theatrical memory of any kind that still sticks with you today. Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me on this podcast. You're uh, earliest theatrical memory uh, probably would be, um, I don't know, probably seven, eight years old uh, in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, we had a school outing in the days that they actually did that kind of thing and brought, you know, children to the theater. Uh, and it was a it was a production of Music Man, or uh, yeah, Music Man, uh, which had a very um, big. I, I don't remember a- almost anything about this production except that it had a very big wagon that came on from stage left, and the casters went awry. And it started heading toward the orchestra pit in the days where the people toured Broadway musicals with an orchestra or used a pickup orchestra. And it started going to the pit, and it, one corner went over. <gasps> and then everything stopped. And I watched these stagehands come out, efficiently write it, efficiently the show went on. And kind of went, hmm, I wonder if that's where it all came from. <laughs> of wanting but to so work it, in this it, business. In your first theatrical experience that you can recall, the lighting didn't much play a part. At no, least in your memory. No, no, it didn't. Yeah. It was it was much more about um, the theater environment, huh. I think. As um, you as you reflect back on it, and of course these are 2020 hindsight yeah. thoughts, um, was that also a, a signal beginning of the what became a growing theatrical bug, an isolated instant, incident? I mean, what be, what's sort of the beginning of the journey of becoming interested in the theater as a place to have a craft? Well, um, because I, I grew up between both Germany and the United States. So I, I kind of ended up in Germany for a while and then back in the U.S. and then Germany for a while um, in, in, in high school and in college. Uh, in high school, um, it, it, my sister uh, was a stage manager and was a Broadway stage manager. So that – the theater lifestyle um, – uh, and then she eventually became a clown and then she married a fairly famous actor and they moved to L.A. But um, that, that environment was already in our household um, uh, in Madison. And, uh, you know, it just – I found the the backstage world fascinating and I found design even more fascina- fascinating. So in first year in high school, I uh, wanted to work on stage crew. I had auditioned then. You, it, to work on the stage crew, you had to be in a choir because the choir director ran the stage. Um, I auditioned for choir and immediately was put in one of the top choirs in in. In high school, I had a very good tenor voice at that point in time. It's since now not so good. Um, uh, and it shifted a lot deeper, I have to say, too. <laughs> it's a um, lifetime of being in dark theaters and cigarettes. It's exactly it. It's exactly <laughs> it. So um, and then, you know, working on stage crew and then in in Madison, there was a, a professor at the University of Wisconsin 
who uh, uh, was one of the first generation lighting designers um, because lighting design broke off of scenic design uh, and became its own design field in its own right um, uh, pretty much in the 70s, 60s and 70s. I never knew that. I always yeah. thought, I just presume that they had always been separate crafts. No, no, it was, um, and, and how it's done in Germany very often, um, I, ran, I ran one of the state theaters in Germany as head of lighting and design uh, in Gießen, is uh, how, how it's still done in Germany is more often than not the director and production designer, which is scenic and costume and projections, if there are projections, come in. And the head electrician for a theater will fulfill a light plot they give or instructions that they give for um, uh, for what the lighting design is going to be. Um, but in America, we broke off very fairly quickly. And Gilbert Gilbert Hemsley, who is is kind of a very a big household name in in theater in the theater world, um, was the uh, professor of lighting at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He was also the resident lighting designer for New York City Opera. And in high school, as I think I was a sophomore, I had my father drive me over there uh, <laughs> to his house, and he was throwing a huge party for a hundred and some odd people. And I went and knocked on his door, and he came out with a giant uh, uh, pan with a turkey in it, and he looked at me and he goes, who are you? And I went... My name is Thomas Hashi, and I I want to be a lighting designer. And he just started died laughing, and kind of took me under his wing. So, which turkey wing did he take you under? Yeah, <laughs> as it were. Yeah, you said something yeah, because one of the things I love about these conversations is we learn as listeners uh, a lot of the backstage theater lingo. And so you mentioned the f- the phrase lighting plot. Let's let's jump ahead for just a moment and explain to our listeners what is a lighting plot um well, yeah the process of design is uh, of lighting design um scenic designers can do models they costume designers can do sketches and basically people you know direct the director on the companies look at this information to say okay this is what this is what this design is going to look like lighting designers I talk a good game. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you, I basically, you can't show lighting, I can can't, you? No. Except it, when you're in the theater. I mean, you can point little flashlights on the set, right? It's but painting the, in the air is what I call it. Oh, so, that's a beautiful term. Um, so basically, to a scenic designer, after, after costume sketches go and fabric swaths are, are done, you often can build costumes from that. Um, from I've seen any number of productions where a um, uh, scenery is built from a scenic model, and not even not even drawings. Um, huh. Europeans do that very often. The, the the technical management will then scale off a model. Um, this has to be this way. This has to be this way. And then they they'll do technical drawings. But but o- often lo- older European scenic designers deliver a model, and that's about it. Interesting. So for us, we need to. I basically start talking to director, uh, the team, basically, and we we decide on a direction and we decide on a style. Um, Then I'll translate all of my ideas onto uh, essentially a piece of paper, which I call a design sheet, and then that that design sheet is translated onto a a, a two-scale drawing of 
of the theater with lighting positions, with the scenery, with everything, to actual lighting symbols where um, where the lights are going to be hung, which channel they're going to be in so that we can control them from the computer console. Um, back in the day, it used to be auto transformer hand dimmers you know you've seen we've seen them in old films yeah, all the old it, backstage films yeah, where the yeah. guy with the cigar and yes, the hat and exactly. the rough rough hewn vest is pulling this big lever right. and the lights go on exactly that doesn't happen anymore and it doesn't no no not <laughs> unless you happen to be working in azerbaijan like i did three years ago um but uh, we'll get to that <laughs> yeah. uh, so um and then that information is given to an electrician or a group of electricians. Um, for Cincinnati Opera, for example, it's our production electrician, EJ, um, who then figure out how power is going to get to these units, how data is going to get to these this, these lighting units, and they put it up. And then at some point in time, we end up focusing the lights um, as – Lighting units that we use in theater are not like lights at home. Um, they, they they range from a, a five thousand watts to a thousand watts to seven hundred fifty watts, um, which your normal light bulb is a sixty watt. Um, they're they're very customized, specialized fixtures. Um, some can throw light a great long distance. Some shorter distances. Uh, some. There's all types of different quality of the lights that we use, like a Parkan, which is adopted from uh, literally a, a car headlight, um, is, is a soft light that, can, that comes in four different variants of the light bulb, depending on if it's frosty in the front or not frosty in the front. Um, and, you know, it, there's an, an enormous variety of stage lighting fixtures. And now with the invent of LEDs and... The use of more and more moving lights, which are pro- programmable units that that we can program from the lighting computer to po- point in different ways and to soften and all that kind of thing. So, so I think it would be fascinating to trace um, to trace th- backwards from the face of a performer at a certain moment, if we can, the path back to the source, meaning the electricity. Of a light, so a light, once it is shined, shining, it shines on a performer. And let's give us a term of a light that would be used to illuminate a singer's face when they're standing still. One particular style um, of light uh, that would probably be some kind of a profile unit that we use. Um, so the profile unit is focused; it's is, hanging in the air, or it's on a pipe at a certain point in yeah, the theater. Right. Its cable goes where. Its cable goes um, – it gets plugged into a circuit, which is either nearby or not nearby. So it's either got a long cable that goes to this circuit. The, in almost any theater um, of size, uh, like, for example, the renovation of Music Hall, um, that – our new building will have probably 1,500 of these circuits. Wow. Um, each of them are 20 amp, so it means that you can put 2,000 watts on a circuit. Now, to to put it in perspective, at home, on my fuse box, as it were, or my circuit breaker, right. 
an average household circuit is around 20 amps. Is right? 15 to 20 amps. 15 to 20 amps. Exactly. But that controls... The entire kitchen. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. So you're talking about an enormous amount of electrical energy being harnessed to light a stage. Right. And we're talking about one light that, that goes into a circuit... And then that circuit goes, goes where? That circuit goes probably down a, ra- a like a, a a fixed path raceway with a lot of other circuits, so, and making its way slowly but surely either into the bowels of the building or into um, an attic utility space or something like that, where there's a dimmer room, and these dimmers uh, it's hardwired into these dimmers. Um, some places actually have a patch bay where you then you can patch whichever. So you have a circuit number. So let's say that's circuit. I'm just going to say it's circuit number 10, mm-hmm. right? It goes all the way back. That becomes a dimmer number 10. Mm-hmm. Then from the lighting, uh, then that dimmer gets its instructions from a lighting console. So there is data that is telling the di- that there's there's a data line that goes into this dimmer to tell it to go to full to 50 to 20 right percentage well, percentage wise of illumination right that from the dimmer that uh, there is then a data cable or a set, a trunk of data cables that head back that go into a console and n- w- any one particular light fixture that at that particular moment is shining on the face of this performer, performs multiple functions throughout an evening. In other words, I think that the, the, the supposition that some people have is that the lighting, there are two things. One, that you just light the stage. Right. And people move around on the stage, and they're e- either in the light or out of the light. Yes. <laughs> and the other extreme is, well, there's got to be a light for everything that everybody does, which would mean you'd right. have to have thousands of lights hanging from the ceiling. Right. So is part of your craft, as it were, taking this assemblage of lights that you've hung from the ceiling and put on bars and whatnot, and by making subtle adjustments in the way you deploy them, uh, you that's how you get your versatility. In other words, you have a certain number of lights that are there always throughout the show, and you use them differently from scene to scene. Right. Um, Karian once said, lighting design is the closest thing to composing a symphony in terms of design. Wow. Because it is, you're taking elements, individual notes, if you will. Lights. And you are combining them in different ways continuously over two to three hours. And you're using them on and off, as it were, in different strengths. So at one particular moment, this light fixture may be 100%. Right. And then seven seconds later it may be at only half of its right. original strength because it is being combined with another light at a greater exactly. intensity, exactly. shining on maybe the same area or illuminating yes. a, a fringe of that area. Right. So it is painting in the sky. It is. It very much So is. as you how, did you... how did you begin to learn this craft? Um, <laughs> so... Did you going, go to a go, special go, voodoo go, camp or go, something? <laughs> going back to Gilbert Hemsley um, uh, and the University of Wisconsin-Madison, um, I said, I want to be a lighting designer. And he said, okay, great, but you're not going to go to school for that. You're going to go and you're going to go to school for something else like history or art or literature or anything like that. So because it all comes down to when you start the conversation with the director and the production designers – the of the other designers that 
if the idea is wrong, the lighting's never going to be right. Huh. So it's it's very much about I need to be able to have an idea what was Mexico like in uh, in in 1925 what, in, in 1925 in terms of how dangerous that light is, how, you know, how the, the streets and what were they like and what do we and being able to also then go with emotional intent um and, you know, more often than not, I'm a, I'm a fairly strong collaborator, so the lighting infuses itself as another character in, mm-hmm. in whatever piece I'm lighting. Um, so to learn that, basically, <laughs> I have a degree in history. I have <laughs> I have another degree in literature, and I have what would be considered a master's in aesthetics from the the Institute of um, theater and design in Cologne. Um, I just kind of started doing lighting Mm -hmm. and picked it up. And a fascinating thing you've just touched on for me is that it's something that I once heard in a radio interview with the famous Polish-born pianist Arthur Rubinstein, who was asked by an interviewer the typical question about advice for young pianists, what should I study? And Rubenstein's answer was, go to museums, walk in the park, practice only as much as you have to, fall in love, read great literature, travel the world. His comment is similar to what you've just articulated. In order to be good at any of these crafts where so many arts intersect, the more you know, the more you know in any in anything. Exactly. How So... For example, if you've got a show where it's set in the 18th century and it's in the court of one of the Louis, as it were, um, and everybody's wearing costuming that reflects that time, as opposed to our 1930s bohème with costumes that are different, you light those shows differently, don't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting because often it will... If a production is going to be done naturalistically, for example, our Tosca, which would, it, it, we are in a church. We are in that office. We are on the parapet of that parapet. monument yeah, in Rome. Exactly. Right. Then you start asking those questions of what would the light be? If at, it were real. If it were real. Um and then I layer on a second part, but what's going on in the scene? So, you know, that office in Tosca, that bitey light that's coming in through the window is reflecting what's going on in the scene. Had it been actual moonlight in Rome at that period of time, um, probably would have looked different. Softer, yes, less intense, exactly. So, you're talking about something that I think we've, I've, 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 I've known intuitively, but you articulated so beautifully that lighting for theatrical production is really a combination of a couple of things: one, to create an atmosphere that lends a sense of reality, mm-hmm. if that's what the production demands, but secondly and equally importantly, to set the mood of what the drama is doing at that moment. Exactly. 
There's a beautiful example of that for me in our current production that you've lit of La Boheme, which is in the first act when the lights go out. And uh, it is the supposedly the electrical light in the apartment, and it goes out, and Rodolfo and Mimi in their first encounter are seeing each other by candlelight. But it isn't candlelight, is it? It's you creating the sense of a room in which the lights have gone out and which is only lit by candlelight. Correct. But there's still electrical light in that room. Yes. Yeah. But then comes a moment which I found fantastic where Mimi sits on the chair and the mood changes because, of course, their love story is beginning to develop. And all of a sudden in a room that was dark, supposedly, with only candlelight, the moon begins to shine. Right. On her face. Exactly. So that, for me, is that wonderful combination that you talk about of your lighting does two things. It suggests the real, quote in in quotation marks, atmosphere, but then your next responsibility is to illuminate the drama. Right. Yeah. And and if if you... If you study lighting design, because, of course, I wasn't allowed to do that when I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, but I actually took every lighting course possible just because <laughs> I wanted to, um, uh, kind of night school. Um, there's, there's a theory behind um, stage lighting designs. Primary function is to illuminate everyone. It is to focus the action. Um, third is then evoke mood my my theory about it is if if i'm if i'm doing my job and i'm telling the story cuz i have to tell the story lighting wise it's it's all about storytelling and i think that's from an early age where i got in, interested in this is storytelling mm-hmm. you know if i'm doing my job and telling helping tell the story I will probably most likely naturally illuminate. Hmm. So I don't go from, okay, I need to put all of this equipment in the air to make sure I'm illuminating. I'm going to put this equipment in the air to make the scene work. Hmm. And for example, um, I did a production of A Doll's House in, uh, at the, the National, the Abbey, the National in Dublin. And they're very used to at the, at that time. They were very used to having um, it be very bright and very even. And this production of the Dolls House was it was quite amazing in 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 its concept. Um, uh, the director was Lazo Matin, who uh, was running the State Theater um, in uh, um, Budapest at the time. Hmm. So. We did this house very naturalistically in a way that um, several scenes were by light through a window that was like a window gobo and all of that. Um, and it fo- that the idea followed that, okay, she is basically starting to sit in the dark and waiting for the doctor to come in and light will start, start you know, we're in Scandinavia, moonlight will start coming through the window and they will have this conversation in half, half light, as it were, because this conversation is very embarrassing to her. And then she basically gets angry and lights a candle, and it suddenly lights up. Hmm. The room lights up. 
all of that, those ideas were to basically follow the dramatic emotions going on in this. But there, there, there was no, oh, we need to have this battery of light on at all times so that we make sure we see them. So you were given the, as it were, permission, or you took the, you took the idea that you're going to light the emotions as well as the scene, if not more so the emotions, and the scene becomes part of the emotions. And the scene, and yes, and the, the, if I'm doing my job correctly, um, they will be illuminated and we will be able to see them. Um, you know, it's, a, it's funny because I, I – um, to, to finish off this Doll's House um, production. So at the moment where Torvald gets the letter, um, they both run outside and it's been raining continuously outside, um, theatrical effect. And they run outside and they come back in soaked, her, him dragging her. And at that moment, everything snaps away and I go to complete white footlight. Hmm. The complete illusion of the house is now destroyed, which is exactly what that moment is about. Hmm. And the set was built in such a way that you could backlight it and it would x-ray. So basically the walls all went away. So the home got destroyed and only in the very last moment where she leaves him, it came back to a reality that Torvald's now sitting alone in this empty room. Wow. And so, that, that is done with yes, the lighting. Completely. There was, there was no other ch- scene change that happened there. So, yeah. You've, you've, uh, you've dropped a couple of hints, even in this part, short part of our conversation, that uh, – a show you lit in Azerbaijan, and you were at the Abbey Theater in Dublin. We know you here in Cincinnati, but your work takes you lots of places. Uh, what are some of the more interesting places you've in which you've done your work? Um, well, uh, so kind of catching up the back part of the the, the after education, um, I. I ended up going in Bonn and, and um, working for a political group that that wasn't popular, and I spent a couple of years doing that. And basically, to make a living, I was doing lighting design. <laughs> Strangely enough, there, there are two places that you can work in the world illegally um, that I've discovered. Um, one is a restaurant. <laughs> the <laughs> it's other a cash is business. the other is theater takes in its own kind. Interesting. Yeah. So. Um, I then came back to the United States um, as that the, the the demonstrations and everything were were fading and everything and um, uh, decided that I was going to apply for a Fulbright grant um, and there was no lighting design Fulbright grant um, so I wrote the lighting design Fulbright grant submitted it to the Fulbright committee it got approved then I applied for that Fulbright grant and got it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lighting designers ever since have thanked you. I oh hope. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it was it was scenic design and costume design, but there was nothing for lighting design. And this was back in the day where you used a typewriter to do proposals. So it, that proposal, I think, was six hundred pages of some uh, oh of gosh. length and stuff. So I pioneered that Lighting Fulbright grant, um, and because in Germany you can't study lighting design, period. Uh, you can't. They, they, they. You can study. You can't study 
There are no working theaters in a German university. Huh. It, it you st- If you get a theater degree, you study about the people that are doing theater. <laughs> If you want to learn how to do theater, you become an assistant director. You become uh, you 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 do a, a practicum, uh, an internship, um, that kind of thing. So, so it's the old apprenticeship model. It's the old. It's appren- been around in Germany for hundreds of years. Well, oh. lots of places, but Germany for hundreds of years. What's Wagner's Die Meistersingers, if not about an apprentice? Exactly, too? exactly. So, by pioneering that, I ended up at the um, uh, the Cologne uh, Theater, State Theater. Um, by walking in and saying, hey, um, I'm, I'm going to school in Cologne, so and you don't need to pay me, but I'll, I'll just be an apprentice. Um, and they were like, awesome. And, uh, and I, did the same, I did the same thing for, uh, at West German Radio and TV, which is now how the, the Fulbright Grant is actually structured, that you need to have two, two apprenticeships and, and be at a university. So I studied aesthetics at the university and then ended up – both at West German Radio and TV, lighting, li- li- helping light live events, as well as um, uh, at the Opera in Cologne during the days where Humpa was there, which was extraordinary. And they actually had recognized lighting design, and Hans Tolstetter was the, considered the resident lighting designer for the, the Opera Cologne. And then as soon as I got done with that, um, bo- that Fulbright grant, I got hired by both organizations immediately. Um, so I was an inspector in Cologne for, for three to four Four years, three years, two years actually, um, and then I came back to the United States. And um, Robert uh, uh, began working, and I was living in New York at the time. And I was uh, Ping Chong's lighting designer, uh, Meredith Monk's lighting designer, and um, uh, basically Ping Chong's production manager also. Uh, and then I got a phone call from Robert Tannenbaum in Gießen, and he really wanted me to come and work there. And so back to Germany you go. I Yes, and I, I, I continually flew back and forth working. And so by, by doing that, I ended up meeting this great volume of young directors who – and every show was the same. We'd, they'd come into the theater and they'd be like, oh, you're the head electrician? I said, no, I'm the lighting designer that's been assigned to light your production. Um, and they're like, we don't need a lighting designer. We have our own ideas. And you basically then spent three weeks going through and then by the end of the process, 99.9% of the time it was, this was so cool. We need to do this again. So suddenly I have this very large – stable of directors who are bringing me places. And so to answer the long way around of answering your question is um, Azerbaijan, yeah. Uh, I, did a, I did a ballet um, in the desert, uh, open air up against the Gobistan Mountains called the Shadow of Gobistan. Um, you know. But I've, you know, I've talked to you. I've, I've been trying to think in my head as we've been talking. I know I've had a conversation with you in f- most of the Scandinavian countries. Yes. Of course, England, Germany, and France. Uh, I don't think I've talked to you in Asia yet, but it'll yeah. probably happen yeah. if it hasn't happened yeah. already. Yeah, Japan. Japan. I, I used to be in Japan quite a bit. Um, so th- the life of a lighting designer can be very peripatetic. Yeah. It can be. It can be. I've got senior status on two airlines. So. <laughs> and so with, although you're, you're just now at the high noon of your career, have there been a couple of, a couple of really high points in no matter what the genre, theater or opera or festivals, a couple of things you say, you know, if someone asks me what are my two or three top 
experience as a lighting designer, a couple of them would be what for you? Uh, the world premiere of Waiting for the Barbarians by Philip Glass. Um, in which, Essen? Uh, no. Yeah, that was in, uh, that was in uh, Erfurt. Erfurt. Yeah. Erfurt, Germany. Right. Um, that, was, that was pretty amazing. That production was pretty amazing. Um, company, as we did it at the Playhouse in the Park, uh, the John Doyle Company, um, not the Broadway move because that was all then about commercial stuff. But here it was really creating something so unique and different. I remember sitting in that theater on opening night up on the hill and being blown away by the storytelling of your lighting. Yeah. And, of course, that was a production, as you said, that went on to Broadway right. and birthed a couple of stars who are yeah. working pretty regularly in theater and exactly. in film nowadays. Yeah. So uh, the Philip Glass Opera, which I saw in, in Erfurt, what was special about it for you, what, as, for your craft? Um, it was – I felt like for me it was one of the first times that I was working with – I was working with George Seepin who – was, did the production design for the show. Uh, well, no, actually just did the scenic design. Hunk Gittel did the, the costumes. But I was working at a level that the complication level was so high, um, getting light behind scrims and lighting the sc- these scrims to be able to snap back and forth to. Um, I just felt like we so told the story hmm. in in such a dynamic way um, it, it, it it was not for the faint of heart that, that, <laughs> that technical process wasn't for the faint of heart because nobody knew this was gonna if this was gonna work or not mm-hmm. um, you know painted RP screen um, that you would light from the back to invoke an image with a scrim in front of it that had a different image on it that you lit from the front to invoke that and if if it didn't work we didn't have a show so some of your craft and art is about Layers, too, just it like is. a painter. I yeah. mean, the painting analogy just keeps coming back yeah. and back. And yeah, back. no, it's all about layers. It's, you know, side light and then but let's layer this in and then this in. And then, of course, the stage has depth and there are different items to – there are different objects on the stage that also need paint that, – that need lighting treatment. And then there's possibly a background that also needs a lighting treatment. I mean, like Frida is a perfect example of this. I mean, you have this – incredible story through 100, 230 cues um, being told in, in, in the downstage area and on the platforms, but all of those different objects, which are paintings, uh, they are bits of her painting, all need a painterly touch. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so the peripatetic lighting designer must put his suitcase down from time to time. What's home these days? Yeah, oh, that's a, that's an interesting question. I um I three years ago decided that I was tired of sleeping in a crappy apartment at the playoff. No offense, but the, you know it was it, it was an apartment that I would rent um, to be here for three and a half months a year, and so I bought a small condo um, in Cincinnati. Oh, so um, Cincinnati is home home. Yes, I mean I still have an office and I still actually have a living space in Chicago um, where my my personal services corporation is um, and that that's considered that for tax purposes home right. but here is I'm here and I come back here we right love that <laughs> and I love Cincinnati I, I you know having moved in and and you know that area behind the park is is lovely and I've got Creighton Havers and 
I enjoy coming back here and being here. You know, I mean, we've got the we've got the best crew in the country, as far as I'm concerned, and the, I've made a lot of friends in the city. Yeah, it's yeah. clear. Yeah, when you come to our art form, because I know you also do uh, plays as well. What are the scenes? What are the kinds of scenes in opera that are most challenging for a lighting designer? It's like the triumphal scene in Aida, a particular challenge more so than the second act of Tosca. That's just a smaller room. Um, what? What's, um, what's hard? What? What? What's cha- What is challenging is um, if the rest of the design is problematic, if the scenic design or the costume design is problematic. I'm up for almost any challenge. Um, I'm, for example, I'm doing the Demon in Barcelona, um, and then Bordeaux. The Fe- Rubinstein Opera, the yeah, Demon. Yeah. Okay. And then Bordeaux Festival, and it's going to Nuremberg and Berlin and Moscow. Um, that is essentially a tunnel that goes back with a a giant orb capping the tunnel upstage, which is a giant projection screen. Whoa. Uh, and a circular projection screen. And it flies in and out. It moves up and down stage. It does all of this. And basically lighting people in the tunnel and dramatically lighting the people in the tunnel and not li- not blowing out the projections with light because stage light can still blow out any kind of projection. Right. You know, one one lighting unit get turned on at a screen and, and you're the, never going to see The image of the projection ever. goes away. Right. right. Um, that's not hard. It's it's challenging. It's uh, you know, now we've cut holes in this tunnel from above so that that look like basic windows of some kind, or or where I can get beams of light to come into it. Mm-hmm. If we had not done that, that would be hard. Because then you know, when I'm not given the tools to be able to, when I'm not given the brushes to paint. That's the problem, um, but I don't. There's not any particular scene that there. There are more. There's some that are more difficult than others. If the scene is not being directed specifically, mm-hmm. sure. you know, if people are just wandering around the stage for no good reason. Uh, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but but no. I mean, I have done productions that way where where the director did not have a very clear image of this scene, per se, or that scene, per se. That makes your work harder. Oh, it makes it a ton harder. So audiences are probably only really aware of scenic elements and the the craft of theater and opera when something goes wrong. Mm -hmm. A piece of scenery falls, then you realize it's, you know, it's canvas on wood secured to the floor. What can go wrong with lighting? Other than, I guess, a light burning out, but... Um, Well... So we're we're using uh, up to uh, for ne- for example next season's repertory plot for of the, of the three main stages we're doing will have a thousand two hundred units in it. So what's an average, and why is that so much bigger? Uh, our average has been eight hundred to nine hundred units every season. In other words, in the in the fly space of music hall and in all the other places you put lighting, yeah. there are eight average eight hundred and fifty lighting instruments in the air for the entire season. Right, 
and they're going to be over a thousand for 2018. Right. Is that because music hall is going to be darker when we go back? <laughs> no, it's because we're 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 doing a, a, a opera about a rock and roll star. Uh, <laughs> so you have to be able to make one opera production look like a rock show. Yes, exactly. And the other is realistically done, and then the other will probably be very conceptual. And that's, Interesting. you know, so you're you're actually stylistically in our seasons, which I, I really, I, I very much enjoy. And I've been doing repertory theater for a long time. I'm the, in Gießen, we did, we had 24 productions on that stage at any given time. Of, oh, my gosh. You know, so it, it was a nightly basis. It was all everything different. And I enjoy that because it's then it's, it's a different style. It's a different you know, it's it's a different time period. It's uh, are we are we doing this realistically or naturalistically? No, or how, if we're doing conceptually, what does that mean? All of that kind of stuff, and and the variance, I enjoy a great deal because mm-hmm. I think that diversity is what really makes theater fascinating to me. Is so that, what can what can go wrong? So what You've can got go a thousand wrong? lights. If one goes out, do you just turn another one on? Well, yeah, but that's the thing about it is that normally I tend to in in my design aesthetic, I like using strong single source lighting um, and and blending it with other things. But then there is an intention. So if that single source light goes out, it suddenly doesn't look really great. Um, people be lit, but they're you know. So the the burning out of a lighting unit is 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 a yes that that could go wrong. Other things that could go wrong is uh, a console malfunction. We are so bent on, uh, so wrapped up in computers that you know everything, every lighting state on stage or or cue as we call them um, is recorded into a lighting console, and then um, the stage manager will call the cue points and then Q21 go and it runs over time and and the lights change over the, a specific amount of time that's given into the computer. If the computer goes down, well, that's the bad thing. Um, <laughs> and then we we use a uh, we use a great deal of um, high tech in, in at at Cincinnati Opera for example. I I kind of pioneered the use of moving lights um, in opera many many years ago when i first came here um and and it's all it's caught on uh, <laughs> everybody's doing it now so for our audience who may you may have be most familiar with a moving light let's say if you've gone to a rock concert where there are these large devices that are hanging in the air often that you can see of course they're somewhat conical shaped they're on an armature and they do everything but backflips, and they can change colors, and they move 360 degrees, and also 180 degrees right. up and down. And, and they're be- constant in some beam- op- in some rock shows. They look like they're constantly moving. They're constantly moving, and the beams can be um, manipulated, um, larger, smaller. You can put um, a, a projection plate in front of them, the autom- automated wise, and it will look like light through trees there's there's a many 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 things an individual moving light can do and we over the course of the 21 years I've been at Cincinnati Opera we've purchased um, through various um, fire sales and things like that where I'm like oh they're selling that 
inexpensively. Let's get to a couple of those. We, we own a, a stock of about 24 of a medium range moving light uh, in, in terms of intensity and eight uh, high high yield moving lights and uh, uh, another stock of, of wash luminaries that that basically do soft light and they can be they can also go to pin spot size but they don't have as many features as the other ones. So in your three decades plus now of working in this profession, it sounds like technology has, as it has in so many other areas, exploded for you. Is there one particularly significant technological advancement that you thank your lucky stars for now that you're working, made your work either easier or more creative or just more fun? I think the the, the ability for a, a normal company to have moving lights has been one of the biggest features in my lifetime. Um, now, with that joy and privilege comes, of course, the now I need to read up on every moving light all the time. I mean, the continuing education that lighting designers to the at this at this juncture have to go through is fairly phenomenal, hmm. um, because now everything is. It is all computer-based and driven. It is this. It is that. Um, in, including the drawings are now all on our CAD drafting um, instead of hand drafting, which is when I started. It. And I and I still, to this day, all of my paperwork is hand done. Um, One of the things yeah. I think when guests come to our theater and sit down next to your workspace, they marvel at, is your plethora of legal pads and yellow lined paper yeah. with exquisitely drawn in pencil lighting plots that look like they could have been done in 1960. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's old guard. Um, but but, you but know, it's I, old guard working with the latest technology. Yes. So you're exactly you're not a Luddite. You're no. just that's just the way you're most comfortable. No. It's like I think there are still writers who write their novels longhand. Yeah. And then type them. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah someone, or, then, or someone, else, or someone else types them, you know. <laughs> well, and I know I, I'm certain there are still composers that are doing lots of them. exactly that. Lots you know? of them are, are, you, are still using you pen know. and paper. So, so I think that the the the, the availability of moving lights. Um, I also think the LED revolution, as I have not embraced it as much as other people have, because I actually find lighting quality is in. We are creatures that our first lighting experience way back when we discovered fire was fire. A light bulb is essentially fire in a glass, a tungsten light bulb. It's, it's electricity burning inside of a vacuum or a halogen gas. Um, so then you get into discharge lamps like fluorescence and what's in a moving light, which is an, an HMI bulb or an HID bulb, um, which are uh, essentially electricity going across an arcing. That arc is in a controlled manner, so it allow and, and it emits light. Mm-hmm. You get to – so all of those, both the discharge lamps and your regular incandescent lamp that – you know, slowly but surely we're going away from because of the power consumption. Um, 
they have a spectrum of light. Mm-hmm. So it, and you know, a tungsten lamp has a full spectrum of light. HMI lamps, not as much because they tend to burn whiter. So the warm tones are harder to get out of them in terms of filter. When you get to an LED, you get a single spectrum of light. It's a light-emitting diode. Yes. And that diode is either red, blue, green, amber. So all those different colors of diodes are still only emitting a very, very thin wavelength of light. Now a spectrum. Now a spectrum, right? So when you start using LEDs to light performers, the face, it's hard to get that to look like natural light. It's hard to get that to look like sunlight or moonlight. Well, it's easier for moonlight because the LEDs love blue. And all LED lighting units, the lighting fixtures that are now coming out for almost to replace almost anything, um, are – they tend to shift purple. They tend to shift blue. Um, So next, for example, Music Hall is getting a great many of these LED fixtures basically because that's the wave of the future. (laughs) Uh, Next week, um, we're setting up uh, a – uh, a little kind of lab in the in 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 the Aronoff, um, because I have some time because we're now waiting to go and put magic flute in, and I'm taking a normal incandescent lighting fixture with the color filters that we use in the theater. There's some 600 different color filters that that are manufactured commercially that we can put in front of a light to change its color mm-hmm. against an LED fixture. And putting the color filter in front of the incandescent fixture, then trying to match it with the LED fixture mm-hmm. so that we have a library of colors we can call upon when we get back to Music Hall. Uh, interesting. But so, the, I mean, I think, the, I think the LED revolution is has been, uh, for lighting design, um, it's been really, really, really uh, the been the next wave. Um, it was first the moving light and then now, now it's, it's the LED. LED. You've worked on such a variety of operas and theatrical presentations and just plain presentations. Do you have a little bucket list of a couple of pieces you'd like to do before too long that you ha- that haven't come your way? Um, I have a bucket list of productions that I've done only once that is far, that long, long time ago um, that uh, I would want to do again. I would, I would love to do a Rick's Progress here. I would also love to do a Wozzeck again. Um, I worked on a Wozzeck basically when I was in my 30s. And And does the appeal of both of those particular operas have to do with their content, the music, the story that they tell? What's the the draw for those? Let's say, let's choose both of those. Both of those are both music and story, Uh Um, you know. I, Neither one of them is a cheery comedy, I might add. No, no. You know, I mean, I, I also would throw in, because I've never lit a Flying Dutchman, I want to do a Flying Dutchman. You get to do that uh, next year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. What do you do during a performance, now that your work is all done, and are you are, are you a pacer at the back of the theater? Are you I, a sitting-in-a-seat kind of guy? I am a pacer in the lobby. <laughs> you know, and it's actually very funny, because it, it um, I don't, 
and people have chastised me for this. I don't need to see the opening night performance. I've actually seen, by the time the show opens, it, if it's a regional theater show, I've seen the show probably 20, 25 times, you know, um, in different forms. And right. when we've done a run of Act One or a run of Act Two, if it's an opera, I've seen the show four, four times, five times, six times already, as we've done run throughs and things sure. like that. Um, so I, I tend to be in the lobby or be outside of the theater. I remember a moment in San Diego two years ago when we were doing this Boheme, um, saving San Diego opera, as it were. Um, and uh, I went out on the, the the square outside of that kind of funny funny little city theater building. That, um, but it, it's a it's a nice courtyard out there, and I just sat there and reflected on the piece. It, for me, it's a it's a period of time to, for closure of. You know, because there are some projects that I've been working on for three years, four years. I mean, for, I'm doing a I'm doing a world premiere of a, the the novel Ice um, at the Finnish National Opera, um, and I've I'm doing lighting and projection design, and I started working on that two years ago, hmm. and it's opening in 2020. Whoa, what a yeah. long timeline! So for me, it's that opening night that first night premiere is a point where all of the various and sundry travels and journeys and all of that, as well as the process of getting, of birthing the show, as it were, um, I find closure. It's done. Yeah. Several years ago, you started what has become a unique Cincinnati opera tradition and a most beloved moment in the course of our season. And I'm not talking about working with interns, and I'm not talking about, you know, this wonderful collaboration you have with our company over now more than two decades. I'm talking about the Bratfry. Yes. <laughs> How did you get this idea that once a year you would take over the loading dock of our theater, bring in probably thousands of Bratwursts and their very special buns from your own special source in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, and stand there over a barbecue for 12 hours and cook for every single member of our company. What is wrong with you, Tomatasi? <laughs> how, how did this come it, about? It started, it, it started actually um, probably f- three years after I arrived here. Um, uh, and that was the point. Nick Muni invited me. Um, it, long ago, far away, he was—he was actually he did a magic flute at uh, um, uh, uh, in Gießen, where I was running the design department, and uh, he said, "Oh, I just got this new job. You must come to Cincinnati." So I—that's—that's that's how I got here, and I f- f- found an opera company that was. N- had an, it was steeped in a, in a very very powerful tradition of music, but n- needed to now take the next level in terms of absolute design. Yep. So, so the early years were very tumultuous in terms of this is what we're doing stage lighting wise, and yes, I know, and yes, now, and yes, I know that's a very big backlight we're hanging over there, right? And but. It worked, and the the reason why it worked is I had some some very strong support from several members of our crew that we still have that are to this day still here, um, and one of those was Gary Kidney. Um, but the 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 
the local, the, the our crew, um, basically jumped on board and said, "Yes, we're gonna we're gonna do this." There were some problems sometimes, but for the most part, we're gonna do this, and we're gonna we're gonna go along on this journey. So about three years in, I kind of went, "I really want to thank them." So um, I ordered some brats from Miesfeld. At that point in time, it was. Uh, two dozen brats and two dozen hard rolls and I bought a couple of bags of chips and and we borrowed Gary's grill and on the music hall dock um, and you know the, the guys chipped in for a little beer and it was my thank you to them and then it just kind of kept growing and now <laughs> I mean, it, we have the now, entire company all yeah. of our singers and all of our chorus and all of our staff and all the production crew yeah. it's a it's a wonderful by the way it's Close to the public. This is just a family affair. Yeah. But it's a wonderful, generous gesture, Thomas. Yeah. Well, and I, I find and, – and as it's grown um, and, and you know, I, I find myself – like this morning, we're actually calling Miesfeld and, and – uh, Putting in a, your order, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we're up to like 34 dozen or something like that, <laughs> like, you know. And it, it's funny because it's – these are – these the Miesfelds are old – family friends of of my parents so you know I, we call every year and they just kind of giggle and you know <laughs> we send them a t-shirt at the end of the season you know and they and uh yeah well, they, no, are and de- it, they are delicious thomas yeah, they really are well it's and it i find it you know i'll be sitting at that grill and i'll turn around and i'll see one of our stars basically in shorts Sitting on a blanket somewhere, like in the loading dock of Music Hall. I mean, I remember when uh, it was Denise Graves one year was hanging out, sitting on this blanket, eating a brat, drinking a beer um, next to Gary Kidney, our technical director next to. I mean, so what happens is it everybody lets their hair down and and we're all part of a company, which I think is, you know, in the opera world. We're wearing suits so often, <laughs> you know, and this is a point that we just – so I kind of – make my heart warm, you know, and I, lo- I love it. And it's it's my gift to the crew and the company, so. Well, I can't thank you enough for mm-hmm. your time. But before we go, I always like to ask our guests pretty much the same questions. And don't think too much about the answer. Just they're sort of off the top of your head responses. Okay. Um, what did you have for breakfast? I haven't had breakfast yet. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. What books are you reading? Uh, if you have any time during the course yeah, of an it, opera it, company it, season. No, you know, and I read so many scripts for, for, for work afterward, uh, for, you know, the fall season and everything else. I'm reading uh, – I'm rereading actually In the Garden of, of the Beasts, which is a great novel about uh, Berlin, uh, the ambassador to Berlin uh, from America during the – Rise of the Nazis. Wow. Yeah. I'm sure you have almost no time to watch television, but if you do, is there a show or two that you watch? Uh, Sherlock. <laughs> Love that. Good choice. <laughs> Love that. And um, I'm, I'm currently watching, when I get a chance, the series The Bridge, which mm-hmm. is a BBC co-production. So you have a smartphone. Uh, yeah. Do you find a, an app or two in particular very useful in your day-to-day life? Next flight, which is a great, <laughs> which is a great app. Um, of course, uh, I'd say I'm not using any apps for work in terms of that. But um, yeah, Next Flight's pretty good. <laughs> you talked about it a little bit earlier, but is there is there a course of study 
that was available to you in college that you would say now in retrospect, I wish I'd studied more of X in college? Physics. Huh. Physics just delights me. So, yeah, probably that. Do you have a favorite uh, Cincinnati restaurant, uh, watering hole tradition that you like? Arnold's. <laughs> Oldest bar in Cincinnati. <laughs> you bet. With Tiffany windows to boot. You bet. Um, tell me something that you believe is true that almost nobody agrees with you on. <laughs> something you firmly believe in that you think everybody else is just crazy. But it's the, it's the truth. Um, side light illuminates the face better than front light. Fair enough. Um, best career advice you've ever received? Go to a museum and look at the, look at the art. Do you have a travel tip for the folks listening to this? Because you are such an inveterate traveler. Yes. Stick with one airline and get status on it. Because <laughs> it's it, true. It it's just a- makes the experience tolerable. Yeah. Yeah. How do you deal with stress? Um, I ride my bike. And you have a really cool bike yeah. here in Cincinnati. I ride my bike and just drive through parks and, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, years ago, I worked with a woman who was um, co-running the public after Joe, Joe Papp died in New York. Um, and she was married to a cancer researcher. And... Uh, uh, they were at a party and somebody came up to him and, and, and she was a director and uh, they, they said, okay, so let's say you're in the lab and you drop a test tube and it's three years of work or whatever, right? And see, in theater, when something goes wrong, we say it isn't cancer research. And he said, oh, well, what I say is now, now that I'm married to Amelia and, and we, you know, we, um, uh, we go to a lot of openings and I now know her, her stress release and everything else. And, um, yeah, I know you guys say, no, this isn't cancer research. Just take it easy. And, you know, what, what, what I say in the lab is, well, at least Frank Rich didn't was in reviewing me on this. <laughs> <laughs> So, Fair enough. <laughs> so stress release is basically going, let's put it all into perspective. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I think you talked a little bit about it in our conversation, but could you cite a particularly important mentor in your professional life? There would be two. It would be Gilbert Hemsley and it would be Hans Tolstede, um, from, that that was running the State Theater in Cologne. Last but certainly not least, uh, because you stand out in the lobby and you see everybody coming into the theater and I'm sure you see some first-time opera goers coming into the theater. Yeah. Do you have a your own personal recommendation for someone trying our art form for the first time? Um, what either they should expect or a mindset that they could bring into the theater that will help them enjoy opera? First of all, go and go into the theater and see opera. Yeah. Um, that. Because I think it's the it's the threshold theory. Um, the the minute you cross the threshold, you're t- ten times or twenty times more likely, if you've had a positive experience, the th- the threshold that you've crossed, to cross that threshold again. Um, opera is not what the stereotype is of it. It is what I call it. It it's the first rock video. <laughs> right. Well said. So. I would 
not walk in with expectations. I, and I would go and walk in and just see what we're doing. And look at the lighting. Yeah, look at the lighting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thomas, thank you so much for your time and for illuminating our upper lives in more ways than one. Very well. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about Cincinnati Opera, please go to cincinnatiopera.org. And please do subscribe to this podcast. For Cincinnati Opera, I'm Evans Mirages. Thank you.